Let's take our Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 6 this evening as we continue our study in Ephesians. Um, Coming close to wrapping this book up. Still have a ways to go, but uh, nearing the final chapters here. It's interesting to me that the world tries to draw a clear line between religious and non-religious and further draws the line within the religious community between those who are fundamentalists and those who are just religious because that's the way they were raised. We have all sorts of statistics and polls and we look into all sorts of social implications regarding this. Uh, But the Bible knows really nothing of these kinds of lines drawn in various places. Um, It really just gives us two categories, the redeemed and the unredeemed, or the regenerate and the unregenerate. The Bible is our authority for faith and practice, that is life. Then what it says is of utmost importance If you ask the non-religious person who's trying to be a better person by self-cultivation what their source of authority is, um, they would probably say they need no authority. But something is their moral compass. They're just trying to be a better person, maybe is what they would say. For what reason? And what determines what makes someone better or not, ultimately, isn't that implying some sort of an authority if they can say, uh, this is better and this is not better? The reality is, is that everyone will give an account one day and there are those who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And we even see that kind of verbiage in our text tonight. So let's begin where we looked last time at the beginning of chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2 and read all the way through verse 6 as we look into this passage together tonight. And then we'll pray once again and then dig in. Ephesians 5 and verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, uh, covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Would you pray with me? Lord, again, uh, we come to you tonight thanking you for your word, for the clarity of it, for the truth of it, for the authority that it has in our life, not because it is independent of you, but because these are your words. And so, Lord, we want to live by them not seeking to earn any sort of favor with you that has been earned by Christ already, but, Lord, seeking to live for you because we know that it pleases you, 
um, because you are worshipped in it, and as well, we know that it is the best way for us to live. And so even as we look at sort of these negative imperatives uh, tonight, Lord, help us to realize the positive that we are to live in a certain way, even though you call us to not live in certain ways as well. So we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his perfect life, his death and resurrection. And we thank you for the imputed righteousness of Christ to our account so that we might live holy lives. Uh, Lord, of course, we do sin. And we know that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of the finished work of Christ. So, Lord, we thank you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to see tonight two groups of sins which are characteristic of those who are not in Christ. And then thirdly, the end of those who practice such things. So there's three points tonight. The first two are the groups of sins which are characteristic of those who are not in Christ. And then the third point is the end of those who practice such things. The first Group of sins are the sins of self-centeredness in verse 3. But, he says, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. But the conjunction here it seems like maybe a weird place to start a study. Uh, it throws into contrast the area of study we looked at the last time we were together. This is the polar opposite of one who is imitating God. So we talk about in verses 1 and 2, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. We recall that idea of the child who comes shuffling in in his dad's shoes and his dad's hat too big for him, his shoes too big for him. He says, Mom, look at me, I'm dad. Um, This idea that we are to be imitators of God like children imitate their parents and we're to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We recall that um, Christ has taken the law, the moral law, and has uh, reduced it to two uh, commands, really. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so we think about this walking in love as Christ has loved us and, and gave himself up. We think about loving God and loving neighbor, uh, putting others first, as it were. The opposite of that is self-centeredness. If I'm not loving God and I'm not loving others, I'm loving myself. And so these characteristics are completely other than the way in which we're to love God and to love others. Let's look at these briefly together. Immorality says, but sexual immorality. Um, In the strictest sense, this means fornication. Anything that falls outside of the prescribed boundaries that God has given us for human sexuality, and that being biblical marriage, one man and one woman for one lifetime. Um, That is God's way. In, In Genesis, we see Moses expanding on what occurs when Adam and Eve are created. that uh, he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. And such is the beginning of marriage. God creates that. Anything that falls outside of that is um, fornication. It is outside of God's perfect plan. Not that we cannot be redeemed from that. But remember, 
Paul is speaking here of patterns of life, that which people are practicing, that which they are running after in their life, not that which they're struggling against. Uh, We certainly struggle against immorality, against lust, and those kinds of things, even as Christians. But the point is, this is characteristic of those who are against God or running against God. Impurity, he uses uh, there, uh, all impurity. This carries the idea of lewdness and filthiness. Moral impurity might be the way that we think about this. And then covetousness um, maybe carries the idea of greed. Some translations, maybe even the one you're reading says greed. To, to love money or material possessions, um, the object of affection. Um, we see this, uh, this equation with idolatry here, um, that we become worshipers of something other than God. Um, so the question tonight is, do you see how all of these are self-focused? Um, and we can really certainly understand that sin itself um, is very uh, a self-focused uh, idea, but there's a reason for this list here. These are all sins that require me to be the center and not the uh, and not God. Um, the interesting point to even consider as we look at this is that these uh, directives are at believers and not unbelievers. So when he's saying this, he he's speaking to a group of believers in a church. He's informing their understanding in regard to these things. Um, This is directed at this local assembly, not individuals, though obviously it has uh, individual implications. These are imperative statements. These are things that are not to be in the Christian life. He says it's not even to be named among believers. Named here is an interesting word. It is the idea of that which is practiced so that it would be something that you're characterized by in your life, that that you would be known by this. Um, And this construction seems a bit odd, but then he says, as is proper among the saints. Uh, He's taking the idea of being named or characterized and placing it with us. He's saying, you ought to be characterized not as those who practice these things, but characterized as saints, holy ones, those who are set aside for God. Again, we come back to this idea of imitating God. God is holy. We are to be set apart, sanctified. Um, There isn't one sense in which this is already what we are, um, that we truly are set apart unto God. Uh, When we are justified, in one sense, We are already sanctified. We are already set apart unto God. We call this sometimes positional sanctification. And then you hear about progressive sanctification. Uh, I think better understanding is that is growing in holiness, um, growing in Christlikeness, growing in imitating Christ or imitating God. And so therefore, we are, when we are living according to that, living what we truly are. Because we have been set apart. And he's saying this is what should characterize us. Therefore, we are to run from sin and toward righteousness. And so he's sort of giving anti-characteristics here of what the Christian is supposed to be like. He's saying this is what we're not to be. 
We're not to be named by these kinds of things. Uh, we're, we're not to be looked at. And, and, and we can't help but, maybe if we're really familiar with the New Testament, think about the church in Corinth, right? And, and the way it seems like their reputation, uh, unlike the church in Thessalonica who had turned from idolatry, it seems like the church in Corinth, they're saying, look, you guys look like a bunch of pagans. You look like the world around you. You're being characterized. In fact, what does Paul say in the book of 1 Corinthians? There are sins that you're allowing and are pr- proud of that even the pagans would say is wrong, right? And so um, he's saying, no, for the believer, we are to be characterized by being set apart, by being imitators of God. So not only, not only are we not to practice these as listed, but we also must see this idea of the sins of the mouth. Secondly, the sins of the mouth. We see these sins of impurity first, and now these sins of the mouth. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place again we see this idea of this isn't how you're supposed to be characterized but instead let there be thanksgiving the sins of the mouth the idea here is continuation of the must nots Uh, by the way the implication of him saying these things are that there are those among uh, this fellowship in, in ephesus probably most likely and even amongst our fellowship uh, I would say especially on Sunday mornings when there's so many gathered here, that they're not true believers. We have to understand that that is likely the case because he is warning the fellowship to not practice these things. The, the implication is that there are those among us who do practice such things. But he goes on to say, there are these areas of the mouth that we need to not be characterized as well. Uh, filthiness. He says there must not be filthiness, that which is obscene and shameful, uh, foolish talk, uh, I mean, just at a basic level, stupid, senseless conversation, um, taking the words quite literally from the Greek, you could say moronic words, uh, right? Um, coarse jesting, uh, dirty jokes, vulgar expressions, you know, um, I, I, I believe that God is gracious and that he um, forgives us of our sin. And I believe that we ought to believe in the grace of God. But there seems to be this trend in Christianity in the last decade or so where um, people are you know, saying, what's wrong with certain vulgar or obscene words? And they, they use them freely. And it, it, to me, it's um, directly against what Paul says here. Say, well, that's just cultural. Well, okay, um, maybe they didn't have those same words back in these days. Um, but we know uh, in a, a cultural sense those things that we uh, should not use because they are obscene, they are vulgar, they are um, filthy. Um, I remember being in uh, England in um, 2007 and uh, I said a word that here would be seen as sort of marginal, you know, not necessarily a dirty word, but um, something that would be just kind of joking around and playing around. And I remember people just, <gasps> when I was there, <laughs> they don't say that word here. Oh, oh, I'm really sorry. Please forgive me for that. I didn't realize that that word would have been offensive. Um, it's interesting that that word that I used was for one of my 
teachers in Bible college completely fine for her to use in the context in which they grew up on the mission field, but she couldn't say crud. <laughs> C-R-U-D. That was a very bad word in the context in which they were. You know, so we know, right? We know what those kinds of words are that we should not use. We should not be characterized by using them. Uh, foolish talk, stupid, senseless conversation. Uh, Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, don't have anything to do with um, fables and, and, and these kinds of ideas of, of things that are just foolish. Um, you know, what is it? Even 10 years ago, we didn't have to worry about things like what we say on Facebook or Twitter or, or whatever other kind of social media that we uh, are a part of today. And I'm telling you guys, there's just so much foolishness out there. Uh, clearly, coarse jesting, dirty uh, jokes, uh, vulgar expressions. Um, let us be careful uh, to uh, use our mouths wisely. We, we understand this. Um, this goes on more often than we would like to admit. Instead, he says, be thankful. <laughs> be thankful. Be a thanks giver. Our speech is to be focused on God and what honors him and focused on others and what honors them. I love Proverbs thirty-one twenty-six. Uh, the virtuous woman. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. This ought to be the attitude of all of us. We need to be so careful about what we say when we speak. Uh, we think about um, these kinds of things, and we're going to get into it in a little bit here. Uh, but we even think about James, don't we? Um, how... Big a fire is set uh, by the small spark of the tongue, right? So many things can be inflamed by that. And we see in the next two verses why it is that we are not to be characterized by these actions and attitudes because we see the end of those who practice such things in verses 5 and 6. Look at what he says. For you may be sure of this, Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. This phrase would literally say, this you know by knowing. This you know by observation. You have acquired this knowledge by experience. No immoral or impure or covetous person who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Here's the rub. It's about those who practice such things. It is those whose lives are characterized by the above points. They will not receive the kingdom of God. They will not receive an inheritance in the kingdom of God. These are what we call in biblical studies um, vice lists. And, and these are listed in several places. Paul lists them. John lists them. Um, but these are not 
things that we are necessarily free from as those who are in Christ in the sense of never committing them ever again. But we are free from the uh, power of them in our lives as believers. We're not free from their presence yet. We will be in eternity, but we are free from the power of these things. We do not have to live in such ways. In fact, we ought not to live in such ways. The, the truth is these are characteristic of someone who refuses to turn from their sin and refuses to grieve over their sin. Is it possible for true believers to sometimes sin or struggle in these ways? Yes, of course it is. It is possible that someone might have a lifelong struggle with one of these sins particularly. But the idea of struggle is the key. They're fighting against it. This is someone who says with Paul, I recognize the, uh, that the flesh is waging war against the Spirit, and I am grieved over my sin and my inability to always do what I want to do in obedience to God. We actually need to find comfort in the struggle. Because if we didn't care, what would that mean? It would mean that it is characteristic of us to not care about what God thinks, to not love God, to not love His people, but to do whatever we wanted to do, to live in these self-centered ways. Find comfort in that. Paul struggled, but it says that he also beat his body into submission. Not literally, but he, he didn't flog himself, in other words. But, but the point is, is that he sought to take control over his body. What is the very last fruit of the Spirit in the list there? It is self-control. Self-control. Now, we recognize that unregenerate mankind seeks to have self-control as well. But we have the empowerment of regeneration. We have the empowerment of the Spirit in order to win control over these desires and deeds of the flesh. It's about gaining self-control through the Spirit over the areas and putting to death the deeds of the flesh, as Paul says. And it is a daily activity. It is a daily exercise. Now, what is the first thing that we do when we wake up? Um, I wish I could say every morning it's waking up and saying, Lord, today I want to win the battle against the flesh by your spirit. Lord, help me uh, to uh, do so today in your power, by your word. Let me open the word. Let me read it. Let me be refreshed in my mind. Let me be renewed in my mind. But sometimes what's the first thing I do? The first thing I do is pick up my phone and say, what's in the news today? You know, <laughs> and that sets me off on the wrong track already, right? Um, but we need to be, you know, as Paul says in Romans 12, renewed in our minds daily. It's a daily activity. However, for those who claim Christ, yet they do not struggle against the flesh. They justify their sins and they do not grieve over their sins. They are the ones the apostle is speaking to. The man or woman whose lifestyle is not one of repentance, not one who says, Lord, I'm tired of the struggle. I'm tired of the sin. I, I don't want to have anything to do with it. They are not grieved over their sin. They do not hate their sin. 
whose lifestyle is not one of repentance, they will not inherit the kingdom of God because they have proven outwardly that they have no claim inwardly. We can profess all day long. As I often say, I can tell you that I'm as good on a skateboard as Tony Hawk. What are you going to say to me? Prove it, right? (laughs) Get on the half pipe, do the 720, let's see it. 1 John is filled with this kind of language. Keep your finger in Ephesians. Tony Hawk is a professional skateboarder, in case some of you don't know. 1 John, chapter 2. Look at verse 28. 1 John 2 and verse 28. John the Apostle, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from Him and shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when, we, when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. And then here's the opposite. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as He is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil For the devil has been sinning since the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, clearly, we understand that John is not talking about sinless perfection here. It says it throughout. In fact, in 1 John, the very beginning, he says, whoever says they have no sin is a liar. And they make God out to be a liar. The point is, what is the trajectory of your life? Is it disregard for the things of God? Is it disregard for loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Is it disregard for loving your neighbor? Or as John says in 1 John, loving your brother. He makes a whole case of that. that You cannot say you love God and hate your brother. What is the practice of our life? It's not perfection in the sense of without sin, but it's lifestyle. That when we sin, as John says in the beginning, we confess our sin. And knowing that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And He says, and if anyone does sin, they have an advocate with God, the Father, Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation for our sins, the one who took the wrath that we deserved. So as we're thinking about this passage in Ephesians, we see this overlap of biblical theology here. The one who is in Christ is not 
without sin in the sense of never sinning again, but the trajectory of their life is to be seeking to do what is right and confessing their sin. Not only this, but we come to understand that this is what brings judgment. Back in Ephesians 5, and looking at verse 6, oh my goodness, this is just so striking. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Possibly there were those running around in Ephesus or in the churches in the Lycus Valley saying, you know, God's grace covers your sin, which is true. But the flip side of that being live therefore any way you'd like to live because God's grace covers it all. That is not what grace teaches us. Grace teaches us because God has forgiven us. Yes, I can sin and God forgives me, but I don't want to run to sin. The reality is is that the wrath of God is coming because of such sins. And if the wrath of God has been poured out on Christ in my behalf, and He has taken that wrath for me, how dare I, in a sense, spit upon that? No, the wrath is coming for those who would abuse such grace and say, well, God has forgiven me, I can live any way I want to. There is no punishment for these things kind of a attitude. There is no way for a Christian to live. That is wrong. We think about the third use of the law. Think about loving God and loving neighbor, and that's instruction to us as regenerate people. The first use is that it would show us that we lack that, and we needed someone to substitute for us so that we could become right with God. But now that we are in Christ and given His righteousness, this becomes the law of living for us, to love God and love neighbor. Therefore, we're not going to take advantage of grace. We're going to be grateful for grace when we do sin, but also recognize that grace energizes us so that we can live rightly for God. The reality is that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience because of these things. This ought to make us extremely sad that there would be those who would want to deceive with empty words and that the reality is is that wrath is coming for those who live in open rebellion against God. This is the reality of that. The most recent issue of Credo magazine that has come out is an expose on universalism. And there are different types of universalism, but at the end of the day, universalism says everyone throughout all of history will be saved. They're all safe. And it really diminishes the wrath of God. And uh, you may be familiar with the name David Bentley Hart. He's a Eastern Orthodox theologian, and he just came out with a massive book on universalism. That is empty words, brothers and sisters. There is wrath coming for those who do not repent. Uh, Turn over to Romans chapter 1. Keep your finger in Ephesians chapter 5. Romans chapter 1. 
Many of us are very familiar with these verses, but look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They, they use their very sin to press down the truth of the existence of God. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things which have been made. So they are without excuse. God is saying here through the Apostle Paul, no man has an excuse. They know God exists and they know the wrath of God is coming. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. Notice here the parallel with Ephesians 5. For images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What did they do? They became idolatrous. Wishing to make gods of their own. Guess what? When we make a god of our own, it, it may be temporally wrathful, a temporally wrathful god. But you can appease that wrath. Right? I mean, we think about the ancient way of appeasing the wrath of God. We were just in Puebla, Mexico, and we saw the altar where once a year they would take a six or seven year old child and place that child on that altar and, and, and sacrifice a child on an altar. It's there. After, I don't know, over a thousand years, that altar still exists. We can appease the God temporally, right? But he's not going to bring ultimate judgment. So we can have a God of our own making, but the wrath of God is greater than what we can imagine. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God. Notice again the parallels here of Ephesians 5. For a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with the passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. Given over to sexual sin, right? Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. And if that weren't enough, they had to invent all kinds of their own evil. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, Ruthless. They know, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Does this not sound like, in summary, what Ephesians 5 is saying? Don't be afraid of God's wrath. God is gracious. Paul says those are deceptive and empty words in Ephesians 5. Don't let anyone deceive you 
with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. But the good news is, is that the wrath of God has already come at the cross. He, Jesus, is the propitiation, the satisfaction of the wrath of God to every person who believes. You say, I, I don't know, uh, have I been forgiven? Have, have I had the wrath received for me? The only way to know is to trust in Christ. If you turn from your sin and trust in Christ, you can say with certainty that that wrath has been received for you. And therefore, you'll want to live in a certain way. Again, not with sinlessness, but knowing that even when you sin, you are forgiven, seeking to live for the one who died and rose again for you. We're going to look again at verse 6 the next time we're together in Ephesians because it really kind of bridges the gap between that uh, this section and the next. But just kind of closing here tonight, we're asking ourselves some things, right? Are we obeying God out of a desire to please Him or desire to earn favor with Him? That is the danger on one side, isn't it? To hear these things and say, oh, I better keep myself cleaned up so that God will accept me. Can't do it. Never be able, you'll never be able to do it. Jesus has to substitute for you in that way as well as his death on the cross. But for those of us who are in Christ, we need to ask ourselves, are we killing sin? By the power of the Spirit, by the Word of God, renewing our minds, what are, we, what are our minds dwelling on? What do our actions portray? Not, not sinlessness, once again. But if we do sin, are we saying, oh man, I hate that sin. God, please forgive me for that. I don't want to live in that way. And then seeking accountability so that we can continue to walk in righteousness. What do our mouths portray? What do we say? Or maybe better in our age, what do we type <laughs> from behind the screens? Are we living in such a way that if we claim the name of Christ, the label fits? If we were to be put on trial, as it has been said, as a Christian, would somebody find us guilty? Let's pray. Lord, I do not want to leave tonight with a sense of burden but with a sense of freedom. Lord, you have forgiven us in Christ, and therefore, if we are in Christ, we are new creations. Old things have passed away, new things have come. We are able to live freely in your grace, knowing that if we sin, we can confess that and you forgive us. Also knowing, Lord, that we want to love you and to love our neighbor, especially the brethren, well. So, Lord, help us to see that we can because Christ's righteousness has been given to us, live in such a way. And also, Lord, help us to see uh, that we um, are yours and that you will never leave us or forsake us. 
And yet, Lord, I know as well, um, we uh, may need to confess for the first time and realize that we have not truly come to Christ. That if someone is in that state, that they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone tonight. We thank you and praise you, Lord. We are, if we're in Christ, we are indeed new creations. Help us to live that way. In Jesus' name, amen.